Hello and welcome to this new episode of Vista Talks. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined here in Studio 2 today of Vista Talks with the Chief Technology Officer of Vista Tech. We've been trying to get him on the show for quite a while. He's a very busy man. But we're absolutely delighted you can join us here today and I'm going to introduce you to CTO Phil Ritchie. Phil, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Surrounded by lots of electronics. Yeah, absolutely, with microphones and cameras and recording decks and everything. Thank you so much. Um, Phil, I'm delighted that you're here. We really want to get into some of the topics we're going to touch on today. Before we do that, maybe you could just take a moment and just share a little bit about your role at Vistatech, what you're involved in, and a little bit about your maybe your career to date. Uh, sure, okay. Uh, well, I've, I've been in the industry way longer than uh, I want to think about. Uh, but uh, but it's been good, so I've enjoyed it. I have kind of two uh, responsibilities within Vistatech. One is um, I direct uh, all of the technologies and strategies around um, technologies that we use to interface with our customers. So that would be things like translation management systems, collaboration environments, machine translation, all those um, all those kind of exciting things. And um, that that aspect is supported by a team uh, we call the Applied Technology Group. Um, okay. that, that team gives us an internal development capability, which um, is very good. Allows us to uh, be um, self-deterministic in things. You know, we can we can build things we need quickly. We can do integrations with customers and, and do lots of nice things there. And then the second aspect, uh, second aspect of my role, is um, to uh, direct kind of research and development activities because um, over the last number of years we have done quite a lot of, you know, pure research type things um, in within the localization industry, obviously, but but looking at things like um, natural language processing, machine learning, machine translation, all those lovely things. Um, and, uh, and I look after that aspect too. But I want you to start by giving us some context, if you will, for maybe some people that are newer to the industry and also a bit of a, a memory lane trip for people who are yeah. using XCliff on a daily basis. What, what is it about all these formats? Where did it come from? What's the background? How widely is it used today? Give us a bit of context, will you? I'm old enough to have forgotten most of these things. <laughs> um, so I think probably the best place to start is, is way back in the in the noughties, um, a group of uh, localization service providers and customers were looking for a way to um, make the localization process a bit more interoperable. So. Um, you know, a customer might have documents in Word format or InDesign format or any number of kind of ETP formats. And um, they wanted to simplify the localization process so that rather than everybody at every stage in the workflow having to understand what an InDesign document is or what a Word document is and have to know which parts of that file are translatable. Um, this group of people came up with this idea that they would create um, a standard which would define a file format which could be um, uh, 
moved through the localization process. So the idea is that you you take your source document, you convert it to what became known as XLIF. XLIF goes all the way through your workflow tools and everybody um, would then have standard tools to work with it. And then when all of those localization operations have finished, you convert your XLIF back to your Word doc or back to your InDesign document. This was a, you know, this was this was the goal, and they wanted to have this format standardised and open so that everybody could um, uh, uh, understand how it works yeah. and not have ten different tools to keep doing the same things. So, um, so this happened, and I think I think um, as I say, at that time, the the technology of the day or the file format of the day was, was XML. Yeah. And so um, XLIF was written in XML. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think the first version was published in like 2001 or something. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I, I guess it, it took a while for some people to adopt, but over the years, you know, it's, it's um, got better and better. There was a very long period between uh, version one of what is now version two, uh, but I, but I, you, you have to remember that a lot of this effort is, yeah, driven by volunteers as well. So, um, you know, people have their day jobs and they kind of do this as an interest. Understood. But really came from a position of. How do we make this easier for everybody? I mean, there was obviously yeah. a problem there needed to be fixed. Yeah. This and format sort of helped the process in the localization journey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and everybody, you know, all of the localization service providers have their own different tools internally. And it just means that if you have this one format you can share, you know, you can move the file from one LSP to another or one customer department and another. And, and today, for widely adopted, Used by a lot of companies. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 I honestly couldn't say what the you know percentage uh, adoption rate is. We certainly use it uh, in Vista Tech, um, and our um, our open source editor, just called Ocelot, right, uh, which is freely available up on um, GitHub. Yeah, supports both the XLIF one and the XLIF two standards. So. Okay. Um, so you touched on something new there. So the Ocelot, which I know has been around for for a while now and has been growing in, in its adoption. Yeah. Could you maybe just take a moment and just for people that aren't maybe as aware of it, just tell us a little bit about Ocelot and where that came from, what that's what that's doing for the industry too, because that's really yeah. interesting. So, so when when after the public publication of uh, Exlist which accommodates um, the, the very, the kind of core standard bits of the localization process. Um, myself and an extended group of people were interested in being able to add other information. So uh, perhaps I would like to capture who the translator was that edited this file or maybe a particular tool was used to QA the file. And, and we wanted to add that information into the XLIF. So um, we uh, joined uh, a European Commission funded project, group of 10 companies. And that project was funded to look at um, 
standardizing how that kind of information could be added to Exif. And um, Ocelot came out of that research project because we not only wanted to define a standard, but we wanted to test that standard in a real working environment. So mm. we basically built Ocelot to support Exlif plus these new extensions that we were designing. And that was a that was a really good idea because it enabled us by the time we had by the time we launched the standard, we knew that there were tools that had already tested out this, this idea. Okay. So um, so we figured um, quite a lot of development went into that. I mean, it was a group oh, yeah. of quite a lot of people. Yeah. The European Union are sort of behind yeah. it. I mean, pretty yeah. big yeah. projects. Yeah. So. It's a significant yeah. uh, investment in yeah. the time. Um, you know, but we we felt that it it would be a good thing and probably help to drive adoption if we you know if there was a tool there that people could use and play with and investigate and evaluate. So um, so we made that step to open source it. Now we, again, we, we use it internally, we use it for some of our biggest accounts, and we actually do use its ability to capture this additional um, information. So for example, when we're doing linguistic QA, Ocelot is able to capture all of the information about what errors were in the file and how serious those errors were, and uh, collect all that data together. So it's, it's pretty, extremely useful to It's pretty cool, yeah. even if I say it's <laughs> Very good, thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, because industries move on, technology moves on, yeah. file format standards move on, and uh, obviously given your role as the Chief Technology Officer in uh, VistaTech, uh, you're involved in lots of new um, areas. Yeah. But I wanted to touch now maybe, let, let's talk about JLIF now and, and where this comes from, what's the thinking behind it, where you are with it right now, because yeah. uh, this is this is a new exciting um, yeah. Uh, point in time, really, for the industry, isn't it? Yeah. So, Ex so Exif is it, Exif was very successful in that um, uh, almost kind of industrial um, industrial phase in, in localization. So we, we had this robust format that we could we could move um, through a, a lo localization workflow um, and through a translation management system. But um, you know, obviously, uh, probably since the mid uh, mid to late noughties, people wanted to start communicating um, over the internet. Yeah. And um, you know, the predominant format because everyone was using browsers. Uh, those browsers predominantly were driven by JavaScript, and so uh, people were using a, a format to, to uh, communicate between browsers and servers. Um, called JSON, um, which is kind of native to browsers. Um, JSON is um, uh, a slightly less verbose uh, file format, so it, it you know it was obviously designed to be quite quite small, so that these conversations happening over the internet um, could be done very efficiently. So with the with the prevalence now of um, localization service providers and customers having these web services or these these computers that people want to talk between. So my customer wants to send me files to my server and my server wants to send back pricing information to, to the customer server. Um, we, we um, you know, Exlif is kind of chunky to do that. 
it not only is it quite verbose, but it has quite a strict structure in how you have to have to write them out. Yes. And again, that can kind of add to its verbosity. So um, we we um, as as people like Gala are now starting to define standards um, that that allow this um, localization. Uh, web services, um, people to post files between um, customers and service providers. Service providers want to post data between their service and MT engines, those kinds of things. Um, you know, I think people have been, been looking for a, a nice uh, format to do that in. And so, um, as a member, um, Exif, is, uh, Exif is published by a standards body called OASIS. Uh, which is the open architecture we have looked that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the, they have, uh, they're the publishing body of, of Exlib. And uh, I have been a member of uh, their technical committee uh, for a while. And that technical committee uh, wanted to look at um, designing other, other ways of writing um, Exlib. Uh, and of course, this is where the hookup with Jason came in. So instead of having uh, XLIF, which is kind of you know synonymous with XML, we decided we'd have JLIF, which is synonymous with JSON. And um, and JLIF is is basically XLIF written in JSON. Uh, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Make it that simple. Very good. And where is it at in its development now? Then, so when you know you've been working on this for a little while now. Yeah, I think we've been working on it for about a year, um, and we, we we think that we have kind of a complete draft, and we're kind of I guess the next phase would be to um, to publish that and look for public feedback, criticisms. You know, have we have we just got it completely wrong, or or people see um, the logic, the benefit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, my my involvement has, as well as having involvement in kind of the design aspects, my prime prime role um, was that I wanted to do a bit like we did with Ocelot, where we write write tools that implement this standard as we're designing the standard. Um, I took the same role and um, I was writing code that uses JLIF even before JLIF is kind of finished um, with this notion that we would, at the point that we go to publish it, we know it's it has some foundation and that works. And, you know, that, it, that it's, we're not going to sit hit a stumbling block uh, on day one. Of yes. Um, and again, like Ocelot, we decided that, you know, maybe it would be good to help drive adoption if if uh, these things are kind of known as reference implementations, um, we thought it would be good if people could evaluate JLIF easily. Mm. And so um, the code that I've written, we open source as well. And um, people can, can kind of see you know, what JLIF is and evaluate it. Um, one of the nice things that we did was wrote a converter that converts XLIF to JLIF and back again. Uh, because probably people actually have a lot of XLIF files already. Yeah. So the, the first thing they probably want to do is, you know, so what does this look like in JLIF? So 
Um, so so, you, so you've built you've built already this uh, JLIF to XLIF converter that's yeah. available in the GitHub repository, I'm yes, assuming, exactly, and that yeah. people can download that today. Yeah. Um, now, uh, so so if you download download the code, obviously you have to be technical enough to of course yeah to know how to, uh, to build the code. But uh, we have also deployed a website where you can. Do both of those things convert JLIF to XLIF and back again? And um, uh, you know, again, I think that's helping people as as we start to um, evangelize what JLIF is, people an opportunity to try it out and see. Very good, very good. And what are your hopes for JLIF? Uh, if I can ask you that, like if you just shoot um, forward a few years, I mean, where do you see so, JLIF? So the 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 things that that kind of um, piqued my interest when the discussions about JDF first happened was A, it, it's kind of a format that's very prevalent on the web and, and um, VistaTech, use, we, we, we use a whole ton of um, automation and cloud-based robots. So it's a format that you know we were just looking for something that we could um, use for this communication. And the second thing is that I mentioned XLIF has kind of a quite a strict hierarchy in the way that you have to write it. And one of the things that we decided with JLIF was that we would allow some of that hierarchy to be circumvented. So for example, when, when a customer wants to send me a file for translation, they probably want to include a lot of information so that um, we can be very complete and, and understand exactly what needs translating. But when when me as an LSP sends text to a machine translation system to get a translation, I, I don't need all of that extra data. I just want to basically send an stream in English and yeah. have it sent back in, yeah. in the language. So so one of the things that JLIF allows is is to basically flatten down this this hierarchy, and you can be quite terse about about what a JLIF document looks like. Okay. So, um, Extremely useful. Yeah, yeah so, so we, we could see, uh, I could see immediately where the, we, we could use that in these kind of communications with um, machine translation systems, for example. Yeah. And, um, and actually, we're, we're, we have implemented it quite fully in some machine learning that, that we've been uh, developing. So we have a server that does the machine learning part, and then you can have, um, say, a desktop tool, a desktop editor, let's say, Ocelot for sake of argument, and maybe I want to, um, the, the, the document that I'm working on in Ocelot, maybe I want to send that to the machine, machine learning to, to QA for me. So, um, so we basically use JLIF for that conversation. Ocelot sends the, the JLIF document to the machine learning system. Machine learning system adds lots of information about what's wrong with that document and then sends it back again. So it's, it's pretty good. That sounds really good. Um, um, now, I'm probably, we're probably a little bit crazy because, um, you know, we, I'm telling you that we've implemented it in, <laughs> in kind of production grade um, 
tools and this thing's not even released yet. So. <laughs> you're a little bit ahead of yourself there. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like you, you're already using it in real world situations. Yeah, I think and, kind of yeah. kicks the tires well on it. <laughs> That's great. And then, so uh, in terms, you, you mentioned uh, machine translation there, of course, and you, you mentioned the, the GitHub repository where people can access this, but you've been involved in open source and software for quite a while. So you, you know, I'm thinking back to deep content. I'm thinking back to other tools that you've built and, and outsourced. Yeah. Maybe you could just touch on some of the things that you've, you've been involved in because they're they're interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, in a way, in a way, I, I'm having um, uh, you know, open open source. Uh, you, you you know can be a can be a difficult. Um, proposition um, to make to management. Mm. You know, you're, you're saying, "Hey guys, we spend a lot of time doing this. We should give it away for free." Yeah. So you can imagine what the CFOs and CEOs yeah. Uh, yeah. think of that conversation. <laughs> so for a long time, we were user users of open source tools because you know they're free. They're you know really mm. awesome. Yeah. Um, and and usually you find the tools built by a wider community actually better than, you know, designed by a narrow company. So um, I think we we had that open source conversation about Ocelot probably around six years ago. And, you know, it, it did take quite a bit of deliberation to, to convince management that this was actually a very good thing to do and that you, you know, in a lot of circumstances, it, you're not just giving something away because if you get a community behind it, the community contributes to it, and so you know well, everybody benefits to, to ultimately. Better, yeah, yes. to benefit of, of everyone. Really. So, um, so having having you know had that debate with with uh, with management with Vista Tech, and, you know, got the people to realise this is actually a, you know a good thing to do. Um, you know, we've we've been doing it a lot more since then. I'm really championing that space. Yeah, you know, I think. We, yeah. we have tried to to do that as often as possible. Um, you know, sometimes definitely, like even with us a lot, there there was um, kind of linked components of us a lot that included some some IP that we did want to protect and we didn't want to let go. But, you know, within an open source projects, you can kind of structure them such that that's not an issue and, and you can protect those. So, um, so we definitely do sometimes keep bits to ourselves. Um, but but uh, yeah, Ocelot is out there um, and includes, um, like I say, a, a lot of good techniques for doing Things over and above what standard XLIF um, does. Um, in, in terms of uh, in terms of deep content, we we didn't we didn't open source um, deep content itself. You know, we felt that there was there's a revenue opportunity there for us as a service that that we want to provide, but. Um, essentially, all of the clever things that deep content does um, are built on open standards. So again, although we didn't specifically open source something there, um, all of the standards that it's built on are open source and uh, mm. public. So we felt, you know, we felt that was a, 
a good thing to do. Could you just maybe take a moment just for people maybe in the audience that are listening that don't um, have not come across deep content? Could you just give us a quick synopsis of deep content and what? Because I mean, I've seen it. It's, it's a phenomenal uh, yeah. tool. Um, yeah. So it would be helpful if you could just share maybe a few thoughts on deep content. So, so deep deep content um, is is kind of our brand name for um, a a an avenue of technology which uh, people like Common Sense Advisory call uh, automated content enrichment. So it's this idea that um, in addition, uh, and it, you know, in a way, it kind of comes back to this. The design principles of Ocelot that we wanted this additional information. So it, it's based on the idea that as well as information that's visible to you on a web page, for example, there could be a lot of hidden metadata, uh, metadata being kind of supplementary information um, that's perhaps not visible to you, but it adds to the intelligence of that document as a whole. So, for example, um, uh, in simplistic terms, um, the the author of the document, when it was authored, um, information like that could, could be classed, you know, as metadata. But but what we decided to do um, with with deep content was um, to use. Uh, use use the internet as basically a vast knowledge source, vast knowledge repository, and use some uh, some of these uh, open open standards, open techniques, um, uh, such as such as something called RDF, uh, uh, which allows you to to search the internet in, in quite a structured way. So. We, we said, okay, what if what if we know our document is talking about um, uh, the, the the Irish political situation? Why why don't we, in background, um, to somebody working on this document, go and look up look up information about you know this particular political movement or political context that's happening, and then display that to the user, display that to the author of the document or the reader of the document to give them additional additional context. So um, so if I'm, a, if I'm writing or working on a document, I should say, and uh, I, the topic could be anything, it could be the, uh, an Irish political thing, it could be something about Brexit, it could be something about yeah. um, you know, data privacy, it could be something about a, a particular well-known uh, personality or celebrity. This tool literally goes out and pulls from credible sources the context, so the person reviewing that, if, I'm, uh, you know, if I remember yeah. it correctly, you get that brought right up onto the desktop where you're actually working so you can make sure that the nuance and the understanding of what you're writing about is coming from those credible sources. Exactly. Is that, is exactly. that, yeah. So, you know, you could have a, an acronym that's being used and, um, and deep, deep content can go find that acronym mm. and tell you exactly what it stands for. If you're talking about a particular political leader, it's already been off to the internet and found kind of the authoritative page on who that, that political leader is give you, you know, yeah. background to, yeah. to that person. So, yeah, it's really kind of a, you know, almost an 
immersive experience, but um, but we decided that it could be a, a lot of value add in that when I'm translating a document, uh, rather than have the finished product just being a uh, you know a, a, a linguistic conversion of that that document, what if, what if we actually embedded you know, links to these additional information sources in that finished product, wouldn't that be awesome that we're giving back to the customer something more than they gave us in the first place? Yeah. And uh, so that's that was the kind of vision for, for deep content that we could give people back documents that were far, far more enriched uh, than, than what we had started with. Yeah, really good, really good. So it seems like, Phil, that just in terms of your uh, strategy, your thinking, your engagement, you're pretty busy <laughs> with, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. JLIF seems to be the latest thing, but I, I kind of get the impression that you're, you're involved in quite a lot of forward-thinking yeah. uh, activities yeah. and technologies with your uh, Applied Technologies group here at Vista Tech. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely lucky. Uh, I get to, you know, I get to... Uh, investigate lots of shiny objects as they as they pass by, um, but but you know we we I'm also very conscious that you have you know you have to um, you have to pick the right shiny objects to follow, and you know at the end of the day we want to try and utilize these things in a productive way. So um, you know I, I I suppose that's I suppose. Maybe that's why I'm allowed a little bit of read of this that I have been quite good about keeping keeping myself on the, on the straight and narrow. But, um, but yeah, and having the backup of the applied technology group here in Vista Tech as well is kind of key to the level of service that we can provide because you know um, it, it it means that when when we have quite a lot of customers who are working at this kind of bleeding edge and you know I think it gives them a lot of confidence that when they talk to myself and my team um, you know that we're we're kind of up there with them we, we know we know the technologies they're talking about we're know we know about the the um, conceptual opportunities that these technologies you know uh, provide. And um, I, I think that helps, you know, when we're having conversations. Well, well, tremendously. I mean, I'm very conscious, uh, Phil, that in your, your role as CTO, I mean, you speak at many conferences around the world. I know that uh, you create, you provide great input to the to the wider industry, and I think it's it's uh, very admirable. And uh, I, you know, I'm. I, I, Truly inspired at the fact that not only, of course, you've got your Vista Tech hat on, and you, there's the commercial elements to it that you've touched on, and um, and it's great. But you're also giving things back to community. You're sharing things with the industry. You're sharing that knowledge and that that sort of cutting edge or bleeding edge, whichever terminology we want to use. But uh, to be there at the forefront to use that, you know, that sort of thought leadership and to be able to push the industry and to drive yeah. new initiatives, I think, is uh, is a fantastic position to be in. And uh, it's really, really good to hear about all the things that you're involved in currently. And I'm sure there are other things that you're involved in that we just, you know, we're not going to get to today. Um, but that's that's uh, really good. And I'm very conscious you touched on things like uh, working with global clients there because some of those clients are. 
uh, very complex, very large organizations with very specific requirements. And I know you often talk about the technology agnosticism, but you also build a lot of solutions for these high-end clients too, where something is required. And I think, you know, that's where you're, you, the ATG Applied Technologies Group really comes into its own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, our, our strategy has has always been um, uh, to work with the best technologies available at the time, and um, to be agile enough that um, we we don't end up with vast kind of legacy systems that uh, that, that restrict us, you know in that agility so we yeah we, we've been very lucky to be able to um uh, as they say in popular express these days to pivot quite well when mm. needed uh, to move you know to move systems or to be able to adopt things uh, simply because we felt they were the best solution for a customer and you know to be able to fill in any gaps with our applied technology group and build integrations and things like that. So, so yeah, yeah, we we, we have done some nice stuff. Sometimes sometimes it's funny because the the you know we we have things like deep content which uh, have a bit of sizzle to them, um, but. We actually have an awful lot of um, an awful lot of technology, which just does the same thing day in day out has done for the last six years. To the extent that um, most people have probably forgotten that they ever exist because they just do so efficient. Yeah. <laughs> they do that job yeah. well, and they do it every day. And um, you know, sometimes those things are quite nice to sit back and reflect on and, and think. You know. Do you know that's been running for three years and we, you know, we, we've never had to do anything to it. It's just reliable and it keeps going. Um, so those those things are kind of interesting as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, Phil, I mean, it's it's absolutely great to talk to you. It's, it's fascinating to hear uh, of all the areas that you're involved in. I know that people who are listening to this and uh, reading articles that you publish can catch up with you. I mean, you've only got to tap into this whole localization language industry and your name will pop up somewhere yeah. on some some yeah. conference event you to show, you'll probably bump into it yeah <laughs> and i'm very conscious with the think global awards coming up again this year both in um the usa and in europe uh, we're down in menlo park and in uh, dublin ireland this year for the awards yes. and you've been a speaker many times at the think global forums yeah which i know are always really packed rooms and very well received so you know thank you for that so Better start thinking. <laughs> yeah, more yeah, we, we've more coming. Yeah, for sure. And um, I know you, you you're thinking of uh, publishing some new blog articles, and I don't want to give away too many trade secrets. But I think if people want to follow you on Twitter or stay tuned to the Visitech social media, yeah. there'll be some announcements there on something quite uh, interesting that yeah. I that I think will be coming soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Phil, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure be joined by you today. Thank you for joining us here on Studio 2 at Vista Talks. Thank you so much, Phil. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you.